0: take your Bible and open to the book of John John chapter 15 and I'm going to read down through verse uh, starting in verse 17 I'm going to read down through verse 25 John chapter 15 starting in verse 17 this I command you that you love one another If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me if i had not come and spoken to them they would have not sinned but now they have no excuse for their sin he who hates me hates my father also if i had done if i had not done among them the works which no one else did they would not have sinned but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well but they have done this in order that Uh, The word may be fulfilled that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. Let's pray. Our father, again, we're thankful for the opportunity to come uh, this morning and to open your word and to worship you through our study of uh, your word. And we pray, Lord, you'd guide and direct our thoughts uh, to uh, focus here uh, on what you have uh, left for us in this portion of scripture That we might be uh, challenged and we might be transformed, changed by our interaction with uh, the living word that you have left for us. Guide our time together. Honor yourself elevate the person of Jesus Christ, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you see, we're continuing here in our study in the 15th chapter of uh, John. You know, uh, because we've been here for quite some time now, we're Thursday evening. Uh, the, The Lord has spent the entire... Night with his 11 true disciples. They've left the upper room. They're on their way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, and we are just hours away, right? Unbeknownst to the uh, disciples, but known to Christ, just hours away for when the Lord is going to be arrested, taken away, and crucified. And because the Lord knows what is coming, uh, that his time to depart from them is at hand, uh, he is speaking to them things that are very near and dear upon his heart Uh, truth they need to know things they need to know and understand before the events unfold again just in a very few hours so he has encouraged them repeatedly Uh, he has encouraged them not to let their heart be troubled he's encouraged them to believe on god to keep believing upon him Uh, he has told them that he's going to go and prepare a place for them to which he will come back and receive them to himself he's told them that they will do greater works than he has done they've told them that they will bear a spiritual fruit for god he has told them that if they ask anything uh uh, in his name uh, that god will do it he's told them about the coming of the holy spirit that when he leaves he won't leave them as orphans he won't leave them alone but there will be a helper who will come and who will permanently be present with them actually one who dwells within them he's promised them peace he's taught them on the nature of true saving faith and he has called them his friends and on top of that, throughout the entire evening together this last evening together, the overriding of the predominant theme has been love. He has reassured them both of his love and the love that the father has for them. John chapter thirteen verse one says this having loved them uh, loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end uh, uh, perfectly uh, in the vernacular to the max that love he demonstrated to them and his condescension by girding himself with a towel and then stooping down and washing the dirty feet of the disciples a task reserved for the lowest of slaves he commanded them to love each other chapter 13 verse 34 a new commandment i give you that you love one another even as i have loved you that you also love one another verse 35 by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another spoke to them about that love that he has for them that he has for those who obey him He told them that they are loved by him, loved by the Father. Again, those who obey or keep God's word. Chapter 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. John 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And once again, he gives another, the the command again to love chapter 15 or chapter 15, verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then verse 13, he says this greater love has no one than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. Now, as I told you last time, the kind of love that's being demonstrated by here that or here or that Christ is speaking about, uh, Uh, his love for his people is called agape in the greek it's a divine love it's it's the love of god it's a love that's not feeling oriented but action oriented by a determined act of the will which results in determined acts of self-giving it's a self-sacrificial love an act of choice exercised on behalf uh, even of one's enemies that's god-like agape love manifested again by christ And the fact that he will lay down his life for his friends as the substitute, their substitute. He'll lay down his life for them in the ultimate supreme act of love. Now, it's been a wonderful night together. Again, they're making their way through um, Jerusalem on the way to the garden. The theme is love, but now all of a sudden it's going to change. There's going to be a dramatic shift from love to hate. Because what these men need to know, in spite of the wonderful divine promises that Christ has made to them, they need to know that their life is not going to be easy. There's going to be great difficulty in representing Christ in a God-hating, Christ-hating world. And they need to know that in advance. They need to realize that. The Lord is going to use the word hate some eight times in these verses before us. He's going to use the word persecution twice, which results from the hatred for those who follow Christ. Those who follow Christ, who are loved by him, they are hated, and they are persecuted by the world. So again, with this farewell address with Christ to his beloved disciples, he again is going to lay out another issue, another important principle they need to come to grips with, that according to Jesus, there's going to be a high cost to follow him that must be realized, that has to be faced, They need to know as his followers, they're going to be hated by the world. Just as Jesus was. Just as Jesus was opposed by the people of his time. Despite who he was, who he is. Despite his compassion, his ministry, his mercy, his godly life. Yet the Bible says he was a man who was despised and forsaken of men. So therefore, if the purest love which is ever manifested on the earth... If goodness incarnate was hated by men in general, then those who follow Christ must expect hostility and persecution from the world, just like he received. Because how can we who follow Christ expect to be admired and esteemed by the world if the world persecuted and murdered him? That's the truth. That's the reality. There's a high cost to follow Christ that is often left out of most modern evangelistic appeals and most often left out even of instruction on what it means to be a follower of Christ, the reality of persecution. Now, for the most part, here in the West, unlike the rest of the world, we up to this point in our history have known little persecution. And whatever persecution there has been, for the most part, it's been mostly mild. Up to this point, Western Christians are often concerned for their fellow believers who are persecuted in other lands, but they, in turn, express their concern for us, fearing that an easier setting has fostered within us a shallow spirituality. Listen to the words of a man named Peter Kuzmik, who is a Yugoslavian Christian who suffered under communist Persecution, he says this. So much popular Western evangelical religiosity is so shallow and selfish. It promotes much and demands so little. It offers success, personal happiness, peace of mind, material prosperity, but it hardly speaks of repentance, sacrifice, self denial, holy lifestyle, and a willingness to die for Christ. John Phillips, in his commentary, notes, According to Jesus, such an easy, persecution-free Christianity is far from normal. Indeed, a kind of Christian faith that involves no sacrifice and produces no opposition from the world is, according to the New Testament, not true Christianity at all, because Paul stated plainly, All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And by the way, that word persecuted in Second Timothy three twelve. indeed all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, that word means to make, to run, to flee, put to flight, drive away, pursue in a hostile manner, harass, molest, mistreat. The, the word's a future passive indicative. It's a statement of fact. Uh, and, and again, it's something that will happen to you. The passive uh, tense indicates that. The indicative just says, look, it's just a statement of reality. This is something that's going to happen to you. All who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Therefore, we should expect it. Therefore, we should what? Prepare for it. We should prepare for it. From the day of the inception of the church in Acts chapter 2, the church has always faced persecution. Peter and John dramatically healed this man who was crippled from birth in acts chapter 3 and then peter preaches this great evangelistic powerfully evangelistic message uh, there further on in chapter 3 of the book of acts then the men are arrested and they're put into a jail by the jewish authorities acts chapter 4 verse 1 and they were speaking to these people and while they were speaking to these people the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the sadducees came upon them being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they laid their hands on them, put them in the jail until the next day for it was already evening. Filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter stands up and he gives a strong testimony to the person of Jesus Christ before these religious Jews. Acts chapter 4 verse 8, he says, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are on trial today for the benefit done to a sick man as to how this man has been made well, let it be known to all of you and then all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene whom you crucified whom God raised from the dead by this name this man stands here before you in good health he speaking of Jesus he is the stone which was rejected by you the builders but became the very cornerstone and there's salvation in no one else for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved if you're familiar with the story you know that the Religious leaders didn't take the message very well. They threatened Peter and John. They commanded them not to speak ever again or teach in the name of Jesus. Verse 19 of that chapter, But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge, for we cannot stop speaking about what we've heard and seen. They're released. And by chapter 5, they're back in jail again. And many people are coming to faith in Christ as they faithfully preach the truth. In Acts chapter 6, you start to meet some of the people, some of the believers in the early New Testament church You come in contact with a man named Stephen, who's a bold man, a fearless man. He preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's falsely accused. He's put on trial before the Sanhedrin, in which he gives strong testimony again to the person of Jesus Christ. He condemns the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And then by chapter 7, they stone him to death. At the stoning of uh, Stephen, a general persecution breaks out against all uh, believers in the early church, and in Acts chapter 8, in that uh, chapter, that persecution is led by a a man named Saul of Tarsus. And as you know, Saul of Tarsus has a dramatic uh, encounter uh, with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. He's Uh, radically converted, dramatically converted, Acts chapter 9. Thereafter, he is known as Paul. And soon, he begins to preach the truth. And he uh, starts encountering fierce opposition because, again, he's a a bold, fearless uh, preacher of the gospel and a proclamation and a a proclaimer that Jesus is the Christ. He is the one we've been waiting for. He is the one the whole Old Testament has pointed to. And, of course, that enraged the Jewish uh, authorities in Damascus who are seeking to kill him, uh, the apostles have to. The apostle has to flee for his life. He's lowered over the wall. You might remember in the basket at night, in night and Acts chapter nine, so that he might escape. He go on to Acts chapter twelve. It says about this time, verse one: Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, and he had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. And when he saw it he pleased saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And that was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. But, you know, the story that Peter is miraculously freed by an angel in chapter 12 of the book of Acts. So persecution against uh, the church, against the Christian church, initially was by the religious Jews because they <clears throat> saw the Christians as heretics. They were saw them as uh, promoting this malefactor who uh, was going around... Uh, uh, proclaiming that he was the Christ they saw him as heretics and again the, the Jews were the ones who killed the Christ they were the ones who killed Jesus and, and they're the ones who first persecuted his followers Christians but persecution of uh, believers is going to continue all the way through the early church and beyond uh, all the apostles except for John who dies in exile on the island of uh, Patmos are eventually going to be martyred the law martyred martyrdom James, the son of Zebedee, I just read about him. He dies in 44 AD after he's beheaded by Herod, who launches a persecution after the Christians. Again, he's the first of the twelve to be, first of the twelve apostles to be martyred. Tradition says that Simon Peter died in about 64 to 68 under Nero's persecution of Christians, that he was crucified upside down on a cross. Andrew was uh, crucified on what is known as the St. Andrew's Cross, uh, a cross in the shape of an X uh history says he wasn't a nail to it but he was tied to it therefore it took several days for him to die history again says that he preached while hanging on that cross that he was always a diligent gospel preacher always desiring to see many people come to faith in christ when he was sentenced to death by the roman governor andrew is said to have replied i would not have preached the honor and the glory of the cross if i feared the death of the cross O cross most welcomed and longed for, with a willing mind, joyfully and desirously, I come to you being a scholar of him who, which did hang on you, because I've always been your lover and always embraced you. John, as I said, as we know, John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he's exiled to the island of Patmos. Philip dies in Heropolis in Turkey by hanging. Bartholomew or Nathaniel was believed to have ministered in Armenia and he was filleted to death with knives in India. Matthew dies a martyr's death in Ethiopia. Mark is burned. Thomas, ancient tradition says that Thomas died near Madras, India in 70 AD. He was killed by a spear. James, the son of Alphaeus, or James the Less, tradition says that he was crucified in Egypt, lower Egypt and then he was sawn into pieces Thaddeus was martyred in Persia, died by by arrows Simon the Zealot tradition says that he was crucified uh, and it's uh, again believed that he ministered together with Thaddeus, Paul of course as you know will be beheaded under the reign of Nero Judas Iscariot, not to overlook him obviously, he's the one who betrays Christ he hangs himself before Jesus dies by crucifixion. His death is the second of the apostles recorded in the Bible. So again, it's these men, saved Judas, right, except for Judas, who turned the world upside down. These men whom Jesus had prepared, and God used them as a powerful way to alert the world of the good news that Jesus Christ had come into the world to save sinners, and it was these men who gave their lives and died so that all could hear the good news that forgiveness of sin is free To anyone who repents and believes upon the person of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. The Romans persecuted the Christians as the gospel continued to spread throughout uh, the entire world. Roman persecution of Christians uh, carried on for about 300 years. They wanted to get rid of the Christians for a variety of different reasons, some political, some religious. Christians actually had the audacity to stand up and say, Jesus is Lord. We got some congregations in this country that won't say that, but they actually said that, right? They had the audacity to say Jesus was Lord, and what the Romans wanted them to say was Caesar is Lord. And their allegiance to Jesus actually was so strong that it raised the suspicion of disloyalty to Caesar, so they felt that the Christians were disloyal to the Roman state, and they saw their activity as somewhat, uh, some kind of a treason. Rome viewed emperor worship as the way to kind of blend together to amalgamate together all the people of their vast empire so therefore all roman citizens were required to worship caesar once a year they had to demonstrate their allegiance by burning a pinch of incense to acknowledge the deity of caesar and then they were all required to shout out caesar as lord and as long as they did that as long as they did that and long as they worshiped the emperor then as citizens of rome they could worship any deity any other deities any other number of deities they wanted But Christians wouldn't do that. Christians would not call any man Lord. And when the Christians refused to offer sacrifice to Caesar, worshiping the only true God, again they were seen as traitors and revolutionaries. And they kept talking about another king and another kingdom. Their king was Jesus, and their kingdom or his kingdom was the kingdom of God. So the Romans were worried about them. They were worried that the Christians would be disloyal to the Roman government, that they perhaps might lead or cause some kind of insurrection, especially since Christianity was having a great influence among people of lower classes, poor people, slaves. They were fearful that the Christian message might actually unite these lower class people, might unite the slaves, there be some kind of rebellion against the Roman government. And on top of that, the Christians went around and they preached one true God. The Romans actually believed in many gods. The Christians went around and preached one true God. Therefore, oddly enough, the Romans believed that the Christians were kind of an atheistic group who denied the deities. And biblical Christians stayed apart from the pagan rituals and festivals of the culture and the sinful lifestyles of the godless Romans. Therefore, they lived a peaceful life, a pure life, a righteous life, and that further separated them out from the culture, making them targets of the Roman world. And to all of that, or to add to all of that, the refusal of Christians to participate in these pagan practices was a blow against the, the, the Roman economy because they didn't buy idols. They didn't participate in any kind of pagan sacrifices. And people who were, quote-unquote, delivered from demons uh, through people who went around doing this kind of stuff uh, people who created this kind of an activity, they were starting to lose money because people are only delivered from demons through the gospel. So again, this was impacting the Romans on a financial level because I guess casting out demons or supposedly casting out demons was some kind of a big business. You can look at Acts 16, Acts 19, gives reference to those activities. Christians faced a great misunderstanding in the culture. Uh, of what it meant to eat and drink the elements during the Lord's Supper, leading to charges of cannibalism. And Christians loved each other, so they practiced the the greeting where they greeted each other with the holy kiss, and that led to uh, allegations of uh, incest and other sexual perversions. So Christians and Christianity became a hated sect, a despised religious sect in the Roman Empire. Scorned as depraved and extravagant, a bunch of superstitious individuals, a class hated for their abominations, a set of men adhering to myths and fables, Christians were hated. And they were also, because they didn't worship the deities, they were blamed for every plague, famine, or natural disaster, because Christians refused to worship the traditional gods of the culture. There were ten, ten major periods of Roman persecution of the sect, again known as Christians. Again, the first persecution, formerly under uh, Nero, happens in 64 AD. You might remember the story that Rome is ravaged by fire, it destroys or damages uh, much of it. Uh, rumors start pinning the blame of the fire to Nero. Nero's looking for a scapegoat, so he shifts sufficient uh, away from himself to the Christians. Who are already hated, so that he begins to savagely persecute them. Christians were tortured, thrown to wild animals, covered in pitch, and then burned as human tortures in Nero's gardens. Eusebius records that Nero's rage against Christians was so fierce that his quote: "A man might see cities full of bodies of uh, full of men's bodies and." Old lying together with young and dead bodies of women cast out naked without reference to that sex open uh, at, without reverence to that sex in the open streets just piles of body bodies everywhere. The atrocities of Nero were so great that many Christians thought that he was actually the Antichrist because of his cruelty and abomination. It has been recorded that the Roman persecution of Christians. Uh, that death was not considered enough punishment for the Christian who were subject to the cruelest treatments possible. They were whipped, disemboweled, torn apart, stoned. Plates of hot iron were laid on them. They were strangled, eaten by wild animals, hung and tossed on the horns of bulls. And after after they were dead, their bodies were piled up in heaps, left to rot without burial. The Romans persecuted the Christians under Nero and then under the ruler Domitian in the 90s who launched another official persecution of the Christians. But perhaps the greatest, most violent persecution came under a man named Diocletian uh, starting in 303. He he attempted to utterly wipe out Christianity. He he wanted to exterminate the Christian faith. He issued a number of edicts ordering that the churches, churches be destroyed, all copies of the Bible be burned, And Christians would either sacrifice to the Roman gods or, under the penalty of death, they would face death if they refused to worship. It wasn't until 324 when Constantine took power and established Christianity as the state religion, which becomes, as we know, the forerunner of Roman Catholicism, that the persecution slowed down. Constantine and his co-emperor, a man named Licinius, uh, issued what is known as the Edict of Milan in 313, and that granted freedom of worship to members of all religions. But Licinius reneges on his agreement, therefore persecution continues in some parts of the empire. And again, it's not until Constantine becomes the sole emperor in 324 AD that the Roman persecution of Christians ends permanently, and that's in quotes. Because under when Constantine comes to power, under the Roman Catholic Church that replaces imperial Rome, When the Roman Catholic Church became the dominating power in the Middle Ages, then again, persecution of true believers starts all over again. The Roman Catholic system persecuting true Christians everywhere, all throughout the Middle Ages, all the way up to the time of the Reformation. Through the time of the Reformation, the Reformers are going to be killed, burned at the stake. The Roman Catholic system trying to suppress the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Literally, millions of Christians throughout the history of the church have been martyred for their association with Christ even up to our day and many people even in our day are being martyred many of them by Islamic communities many by uh, communist regimes around the world for their faith in Christ some writers suggest that at the history uh, throughout the history of the Church. Roughly 70 million Christians have been killed by their profession because of their profession of faith in Christ. Many others believing that number being way too small. That the number is actually much greater. Some suggest that two thirds of those martyrs of Christians have occurred since the start of the 20th century. One source estimating that an average of 100,000 Christians are killed every year have been killed every year since 1990. Open Doors Ministry, if perhaps you're familiar with them, uh, I just looked at it this morning, estimates that 360 million Christians uh, around the world are suffering persecution for the cause of Christ. They estimate there could be between 50 to 70,000 people in prison for their faith in Christ in North Korea. And some of you know this because you've seen it, but some of you don't. I just wanted you to Know that the church that we partner with and that we work with there in, in Russia, they have within their building a wall of martyrs. On, on a wall, they have pictures of men and women who were faithful, who literally gave their life for that fellowship so that fellowship might remain. So, persecution of uh, Christians has always been an issue. And as you're aware, if you listen to anything in the news, you know it's a, a growing problem in the world today, even in parts of uh, the world that aren't dominated by other quote-unquote established world religious systems such as in- Islam. E- even parts of the world where religious liberty was once celebrated, like England and the United States, for example. Uh, the secularists have waged such a damaging, uh, damning campaign against Christianity for the last 50 to 70 years Uh, to wipe out the church and any vestige of Christ from the public square. Uh, Christian values, biblical convictions, uh, again, are increasingly under attack from government, from media, from the entertainment industry. Now, most of the threats today, at least in our culture, are only scorn, uh, insults, legal threats. You might notice that in the last week or so, the Senate passed a bill that's going to codify homosexual, quote-unquote, homosexual marriage, which is not marriage. But if you dare speak against it, you're going to be held liable. Probably won't be much longer in this country, or the church in the West in general, faces the same kind of persecution that Christians have always faced and always suffered under throughout its history. The storm clouds are gathering... Therefore, we need to prepare our hearts for the reality of what's coming. Isaac Watts, the hymn writer, wrote this. He says, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own his cause or blush to speak his name? Must I be carried to skies on flowery beds of ease while others fought to win the prize and sailed through bloody seas? Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace to help me unto God? I'm sure, I must fight if I would reign. Increase my courage, Lord. I'll bear the toil, endure the pain supported by your word. Persecution for the cause of Christ has always been a reality for the believer. Jesus said in Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. The closer you get to Christ, the more you look like Christ, the more you're going to get a response from an unbelieving world. Jesus, Matthew ten verse twenty two, and you will be hated by all on account of my name. And again in the text before us, verse 18 of John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 20, remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. John 16, verse 2, they will make you outcasts from the synagogue, but an hour is coming when everyone who kills you to think that they is offering service to God. And again, Paul gave that warning, 2 Timothy, all who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can count on it. You can count on it. If you live a Christ-like life, if you live with Christ-like character in this world, you're going to suffer for his namesake. You're going to suffer for your association with him. You will be persecuted. Peter said the same thing, 1 Peter three fourteen: even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you're blessed, do not... Fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. First Peter four twelve, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fire ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the Spirit of glory in God rests upon you. We should not be surprised when persecution comes. We should be preparing for it. Again, what the Lord is going to do here, uh, again with these 11 men, as he's making his way to the Garden of Gethsemane, he's going to speak forth that reality. He, he wants them to know there's going to be a high cost to follow him. The persecution is the lot, of, the lot of all men in a fallen world that want to follow the Savior. So again, it's... Thursday evening, just hours away from his arrest, his crucifixion. He wants these men whom he loves to know what's going to happen. He wants them to understand the world's going to hate them. The world's going to persecute them just like they hated him, just like they persecuted him. And that's why the Lord says this one more time. John chapter 15, verse 17. That's why he says this. This I command you that you love, it's present active right? I command you keep on loving one another this I command you that you keep on, present active that you keep on loving one another it's vitally important that believers love each other it's vitally important that believers of Christ love each other and here's the reason because we don't have anybody else we are all that we have The world is going to hate us. Therefore, we must love each other. We better love each other. We better stick together. We better be an encouragement to each other. We better, through love, serve one another. We need to be patient and kind with each other. Kindly affectionate to one another. Forbearing one another in love. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit, the bond of peace. (laughs) kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so should also you. Love the brotherhood. Above all things, be fervent in love towards one another. We'd better love each other in the body of Christ in this world because the world's going to hate us and we are all we have. Therefore, with the utmost humility and gentleness and kindness and patience, forbearance, We should be loving each other in Christ. This I command you, that you love one another. Now the Lord's going to list three reasons here in the text why the world hates the followers of Christ so much. First, the world hates or rejects those who are followers of Christ because they hate those who are not part of the world. The world rejects or hates those who are not part of it. Secondly, the world hates Christians because the world hated Jesus Christ. So the world hates those who follow him. They hate Christ. They hate Christians because they hated the Savior. And the third reason the world hates Christians is because the world doesn't know God. The world doesn't know God. Now, we're only going to make it our, our way through one, the first one this morning. Lord willing, we'll do the other two next time. But let's go to the text and look and see, why does the world hate the followers of Christ? Again, the world rejects and hates those who are not part of it. That's point number one. Verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, that I shows you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The phrase, the world, or that word world, cosmos... Uh, again, it's used six times in these two verses. He's not talking about the physical earth. He's talking about the world system that is in opposition to God. The world, it's the world of men who are in rebellion against God. It's the, uh, the current mentality of unbelieving mankind. The world with its values and pleasures and pastimes and expectations and ideologies and practices and and rewards and aspirations which are all in rebellion against God and against his rule. One commentator defines the world as the fallen world system comprised of all unregenerate people. He says it's an expression of satanic wickedness and human depravity that sets itself against Christ, his people, and his kingdom that Satan and his evil minions are in control of. That's the world. Uh, this evil world system uh, that consists of twisted values, unrighteous ambitions, a hostility towards God, profane powers first john five nineteen the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and the defining characteristic of the world is hate it 's hatred of Christ, if the world hates you or it 's really since the world hates you at. Really, a matter of fact, if the world hates you, is by way of matter of fact, know that it hated me before it hated you. D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book entitled The Cross, says this. He says, if you want to know what the world is like, look what it did to him. Look what it did to Jesus. He gave himself for the healing of people and to the instructing of people. He went about doing good. And what was the response of the world? It hated him, persecuted him, rejected him. It chose a murderer before him and it crucified and killed him. Because there on the cross, he exposed the world for what it was or for what it is. That's the world. Evil, wicked, perverse, God hating men. And those who follow Christ, those who know Christ, We're not loved by this world. I know there's a popular methodology out there that says, look, if we look like the world and act like the world and get very close to the world, then we might win the world if they just like us, right? It's not biblical. If you call yourself a follower of Christ and think you can look like the world, act like the world, live like the world, be faithful and live fruitful lives for Jesus Christ, and then still enjoy the favor of the world, you are deceiving yourself. The world hates the followers of Christ. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Now, the word "hates" a pretty strong word, and I think Jesus uses it here intentionally because he's trying to convey the true feeling of the world for those who genuinely belong to Christ. And again, he uses the word eight times in these verses because hatred is the dominant response to the world, to the person of Jesus Christ, and it's the dominant response of the world to those who follow Jesus Christ. And the world demonstrates its hatred towards Christ in a variety of fashions, a variety of ways. Many people casually blaspheme Christ by using his name as a common curse word. It's interesting to me that you never hear any of the names of any of the other quote-unquote world religions used as a curse word, but it's always the name of Jesus Christ that men blaspheme. Men demonstrate their hatred towards Christ by rejecting the Bible, the truth, everything the Bible has to say on every single subject. They rebel against its truth, they attack its authority, they attack its sufficiency, and of course they attack the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. They attack his authority, his deity, his historicity, and his sufficiency. And here, literally, just in a few hours, in the context of the story, the hatred of the world is going to be on full display. Again, Christ is going to be falsely accused, falsely tried, and the Lord is going to be handed over to the Roman authorities. The Roman governor, who is a pagan, right, a not-believer, a guy named Pontius Pilate, he examines Jesus, and he finds no guilt in him, and he wants to release him. Nevertheless, you know, the crowd is going to cry out for his murder. They're going to shout out, crucify him. Crucify him. He's innocent. What has he done? Crucify him. The world wants his death. He demands his death. And again, in turn, they're going to ask for Barabbas, a murderer, to be released instead of Christ. So the world's hatred for Christ is to such extent, although he's innocent and they know it, they still want him dead. They're going to murder him. And because the world now can't physically get their hands on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because he has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven, the world persecutes now those who represent him here in this world and time. You come to somebody in your realm of people you interact with and you come to them out of love and a concern for them and a concern for their eternal soul. And you come to them with the greatest message that any human here could ever hear that God is willing to forgive their sin and desires to show mercy to them and save them from their sin and its penalty and not punish them as they rightly deserve, but rather punish the substitute for those who admit the fact that their sin is in need of a savior. You bring that message to most people and they'll persecute you. They'll reject you. They won't hear anything of it. Who in the world are you to suggest that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior? At the very least, you get a scorn, verbal rebuke, perhaps a physical assault, and now perhaps even a physical assault to the point of death. If the world hates you, Know that it has hated me before it hated you. Again, John chapter 7, the Lord says that the world hates him because he testifies against the world that their deeds are evil. John the writer, John chapter 3 verse 20 says, Everyone who does evil hates the light and doesn't come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 18, chapter 7, verse 1, verse 19, verse 25, chapter 8, verse 37, verse 40, chapter 11, verse 53, Jesus spoke how the religious authorities wanted to kill him. If the world hates you, know that it hated me me before it hated you. Verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If you are of the world, the very clear implication is you are definitely not of the world. The genuine believer is not of the world. These 11 men before him are not of the world. They're in the world, but not of the world. In the world, not of the world, because they've been born again. They're new creations in Christ. All things pass away, new things have come. They've been changed and transformed from the inside out. They're no longer haters of Christ. They're no longer under the... Control of the prince of the power of the air, the devil who works in the sons of disobedience. They have been transferred out. We have been transferred out from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son, the kingdom of light. We're no longer slaves of sin. We're now slaves of righteousness. We, because of God's regenerating grace in our life through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the indwelling person of the Holy Spirit, we've been changed. The genuine believers no longer of this world. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. And and the word love here is not agape. It's not the one we've been talking about. It's not God-like, Christ-like, self-giving, self-sacrificial love. It's actually the word phileo. Brotherly love. Natural affections, passions. It's an imperfect love, a worldly imperfect love. It's an imperfect love that the world has for its own. And, And when Jesus says this, Uh, if if you are the world, the world would love its own. He's not really even saying that in this evil world system, people genuinely love each other. Uh, Its own is in the Greek, and the Greek is in the neuter, uh, the neuter plural, so it really means that people caught up in the world, they love their own things. People who are caught up in the world, they love their own things. They love themselves. They love their own self, their own things. They, 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 they They only love others if there's some kind of advantage for them to gain. Because the world loves selfishly, superficially. Worldly love is always based on self-interest. Worldly love is always based primarily on whatever it can get for itself or gain as a benefit for itself. So worldly affections are determined by the moment. And the momentary pleasures or advantages that a person can gain, I'll love you if... That's why the world is always talking about love conditionally, temporally. Uh, I'll love you if, or I fall, I fell in love with that person. right? And then I fell out of love with them. Because that's not biblical love, that's phileo. If you're of the world, the world would love its own. And because that's true, the world rejects and hates Christians because they hate those who are not a part of it. Verse 19 Uh, Continues, but you are not of the world. I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. Eklegomai. It's in the middle. Aorism, middle indicative. It just means I chose you for myself. I chose you for myself. You're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world. Uh, Again, there's no way to escape the fact he's talking again about the doctrine of election. And nothing is more hated in the, uh, in the realm of men than God's sovereignty exercised in the realm of election. Nothing is more hated than God displaying his sovereign grace to elect some to himself. Men hate the doctrine of election because it's an offense to their pride. It silences their pride. It removes all self-effort. It removes all self-righteousness, all good works. The doctrine of election declares that God is sovereign over the realm of salvation. And men hate that doctrine. Again, these men in front of the Lord, they're not of the world. Uh, The Lord had elected them, chose them, these 11, his disciples, and he chose them for a specific work for them to do in this world. And the same is true of all true believers, all true followers of Christ. Chosen by God, by grace alone through an act of God that took place before time based on God's choice in eternity again according to Ephesians 1.4 so these men 11 the 11 before him just like all men who are called by Christ are not of the world they've been taken out of the world taken from the world drawn out of the world by the love of God the love of God poured out upon them the sacrifice of the Son, or substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ, made different from the world, and therefore the world hates them. The world hates us. We who are made different and called out. Again, the world hates Christ. The, uh, the very idea that you don't think I'm good enough, that I need a Savior, that I need salvation. And the world hates, again, those who represent Christ with that message. Proclaiming the gospel and calling men to repent, to come to faith in Christ, to speak of the reality of the need of a Savior. But irrespective of the response of the world, we're still called to declare the gospel, right? We're still called to be ambassadors of Christ. We're called to beg men and women to repentance, to come to the Savior. That's the message we're to take to the world. We can't become friends with the world, but neither can we escape the world. But we're not called to retreat. We're called to proclaim the truth, take the message of the gospel to a lost world as lights in a world of darkness, as a city set on a hill that can't be hidden, that is seen from miles away. And that's the way we as believers should be living our lives in a fallen world, with a visible faith that is different from those around us who are not part of that faith different from the world around us. We should be hope to the hopeless. We should be light to those who dwell in darkness. We should be life to those who dwell in the shadows of death. And while I'm very thankful that people come here on a regular basis to hear the truth, the reality is it should should not be necessary for people to come here to this physical location to hear the truth of the gospel. To be exposed to the gospel, because that's your responsibility. My responsibility, our responsibility, everywhere we go, everywhere we live, everywhere we come from. We're to take the gospel to the world as we go, as we live our lives. I chose you out of the world. So again, those sovereignly elected by grace are no longer part of this world. Therefore, they're no longer driven by the world system. They're no, no longer governed by the world's values, pleasures, pastimes. Ideologies, which again are all in rebellion against God. Therefore, as those chosen by God out of the world, your life stand, stands as an open rebuke to those who are still in the world. Your life stands as an open rebuke to those who are of the world who still are under those values and systems and actions and attitudes of a fallen world. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, take no part in unfruitful deeds of the works of darkness, but rather expose them. Have no part of them. To live the reality of who we are in Christ in a hostile world as we live in, Paul, writing to the Philippians, uh, uh, cautioned them to avoid sin. Philippians 2.15, prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, amongst whom you appear as lights to the world. because the people who are in this world under the uh, prince of the power of the air that are in rebellion against God not only do they do evil things but they give hearty approval to those who practice them as it says in Romans one thirty-two, and you see that in our country everywhere it's not just perversion it's come join me in my perversion come join me in my rebellion so if we belong to Christ and Christ says you're not out of the world but I chose you out of the world And if you're not feeling much hatred from this evil, wicked world system around us, not that I would suggest we go looking for it, but if you're not feeling much heat, much hatred from this evil world system, maybe it's because you're not living your life the way you ought to live in a fallen world. Maybe there's too much familiarity with this world. Too much friendship with this world. John says in First John 2.15, Do not love the world nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the, w- w- the, love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Maybe there's too much friendship with the world. Maybe you bought into that fallacious uh, methodology that if you just look like the world, act like the world you can win the world, you can't the message of the gospel is confrontational and I was just talking to somebody the other day I can't even remember who but I was saying to that person we got to make sure that we are not uh, um, offensive in the proclamation of the gospel because the gospel message enough is confrontational enough it's offensive as it is so when we speak the truth we speak the truth how? In, in love Right? In love. James 4 and 4, you adulterous, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Maybe there's too much familiarity. Too much fear. You know, it's not news to you, but this entire culture is run by fear. That's the overarching spirit of. It's fear. It's rebellion against God. I got that, but it's fear. Fear drives everything. We're going to talk about not fearing, but trusting tonight in our study. Believers, we don't have anything to fear. But the world fears Everything. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. The world rejects and hates the followers of Jesus Christ because we are no longer a part of this system. And the world always hates those who are not like them. The world always hates those who are not like them, sinners in rebellion against God and against Christ. So if you go to the world and you tell them the truth, God's truth, God's truth about sin, God's truth about the judgment to come, you tell them the truth that God made man male and female, not a variety of different quote-unquote genders. If you tell men the truth about sin, that so-called quote-unquote transgenderism is both a lie and an abomination against God's created order, the world's going to hate you. If you say that homosexuality is a sin, not a lifestyle, it's a sin, the world's going to hate you. If you say that abortion is murder, the world is going to hate you. But we have no other choice than to speak the truth of the truth teller. The one who is truth incarnate. We have no other choice except to speak the truth in love to call men and women to repentance and faith in Christ to be confronted by the truth that they are indeed sinners and in rebellion against God they need a savior and Jesus Christ is that only savior we have to call men and repen- men and women to repentance so that they might escape the wrath that is indeed coming against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their wickedness We are truth tellers. And because we are no longer of this world of liars that is ruled by the ultimate liar and the deceiver, Satan himself, who, unlike God and unlike Christ, hates men and desires that they would face eternal punishment and God's wrath just like he will, we're hated. But it's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. Talking to a young guy a lot. Seems like the Lord is working in his heart. I just had this conversation with him the other day. I do indeed hope the Lord is working in your heart, but let me tell you what, you better count the cost. We're not selling cruise ship Christianity here. We're speaking the truth. Truth is confrontational. Truth is going to cost you because it costs Christ. Incarnate love. The greatest example of God's love and compassion. Kindness. A desire to rescue so that men won't face God the Father in wrath. And they murdered him. We are foolish to think it's going to be different for us. Storm clouds are gathering. You better prepare your heart. And the only way that you can prepare your heart is to properly know the truth and fall deeper and deeper with the person of truth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And know him more. Know him better. Trust him always. Our Father and our God, we're thankful for an opportunity to worship you through the proclamation of your word. And we're thankful for this difficult but much-needed look at reality and again you're the one who brought the subject up you're the one who brought the subject up to your men here as they were departing from the upper room you wanted them to know the truth out of love and again we need to know the truth understand the truth realize the truth and then not fear because again you're the sovereign You're the one that allows all things to come to pass for our good and your glory in our lives and throughout the history of the church, even though we may not understand it. But that's okay. We're not God. You are. Help us to fall deeper in love with You, our God, deeper in love with the person of Jesus Christ. Help us to trust you more, to rely on your word. To rest in the peace that you want to give to us, that you promise to give to us, through Christ. To know the great reality that there's now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, that our eternity has been settled. Therefore, we can walk freely unhindered in time, knowing that you know us and care for us and watch over us. And even if we be faced with persecution, may we stand strong because there's no other place to stand. We take our stand with you, our God, and trust in your sovereign purposes in our life, in our fellowship. With one sole desire that you would be honored That nothing but your glory would matter in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.